Well, open up your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 4. And in that Pew Bible, if you remember, it's on page 1077. It's been about uh, two months, really, since we've been in 1 Peter. We took a bit of a break to prepare ourselves for celebrating Christ's birth at Christmas time and then started off this year with a few other um, thoughts to motivate us and to guide us. And so we're back in 1 Peter. And if you can re- believe this, we started studying it about a year ago. Because a theme of this letter is in chapter 5, verse 12. And there, Peter says that he's writing so that we might stand firm in the true grace of God. And that's true whether you're having a good day or you're facing persecution and hostility like in parts of the world. That we can stand firm in the true grace. And where does that true grace come from? Right here in the word of God. And so, friend, if you don't have an English Bible at home, we want you to have a copy of that. And so just stop by the Connect Corner. One of our hosts there will be happy to give you one. And if anyone needs help on how to read this and how to put it into practice, let them know at the Connect Corner and we'll follow up with you. We want you to treasure this book in the way that God intended it. Well, as we start out, let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, you are a good Father. You are a gracious Father. You are a mighty God. There is truly no rock like our rock. There is no God like our God. You alone know the end from the beginning because you've decreed all that will happen. You perfectly and wisely and with great power bring about all your ends. And so everything that you do and everything you decide to do is good and it is right. But if we're honest, there are days when we're baffled by the evil you permit to be on this earth. And we're guilty, Father, of sitting in judgment over your plans. And oftentimes we do think we know better than you. How foolish that is. And even as we condemn you for allowing evil, we do evil ourselves. We just add to the problems of this world. So would you forgive us? Forgive us for thinking we know better. Forgive us for condemning you. Forgive us for the way that we add condemnation to ourselves by sinning and our own rebellion. Lord Jesus, please remind us of this incredible promise that one day you will come and you will right all the wrongs. Justice will come and be perfectly applied. May we be found in you so that when justice comes, we will get the record of Christ to our account and not our own sins to be punished. Right now, we need help to live lives that will please you. We need help to glorify you in our thoughts and our actions So sharpen our thinking even as we study your word. Give us understanding. Help us to pay attention. And I pray that we would also be moved by your spirit to practice what you reveal to us in your word. We want all the glory. We want all the dominion to go to you forever and ever. So we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It's interesting. If you look at church leaders over the last few decades, it's been rather discouraging the choices that many leaders have made. They've wanted to stay relevant. They've wanted to reach the culture, so they've looked to things like church growth experts to tell them how the church should run. And these experts tell them things like, well, you need to have everyone be fully participating in every aspect of the church, whether they are a Christian or not. Pastors will look to marketing experts to devise strategies on how the church might avoid offending unbelievers, whether that's in a communication style or the content of what we say. 
pragmatism has slipped in as a high value and, and pastors are turning to things like pop psychology. If it works, do it. That's the mantra of so many. Once the goal of the Lord's Day worship service was to come in and give honor and praise to God alone, but now it seems like it's in many churches become a musical experience designed to stir the emotions. Large amounts of church budgets go to things like meeting what people say their needs are, tangible, practical needs. Sermons have been replaced by talks that will never go over 22 minutes. And they emphasize real practical things, how to solve your problems and make life better. And then they sprinkle in some Bible verses to just sanctify those ideas. But rarely will you hear the Bible's teaching on sin, on repentance, on your responsibility before God, how to find forgiveness, and how to live holy lives. Because these things don't grab the attention of the masses. The reality is, is far too many churches in our culture today They've tried so hard to attract the world that they've become just like the world and how they function. The question is, can the church recover her biblical purpose? Can we remain faithful to what God has said? Or is that an archaic idea that has no bearing anymore, that we should just go along with what's happening The Bible would say different. The Bible would say, yes, we can walk faithfully. And it begins when believers leave the obsession with the modern view of the self. That it is the highest that needs to be satisfied above all things. That the change begins when believers regularly think and speak and act in accordance with this book instead of what society says we should be like. Now, the reality is this won't necessarily produce large churches. But what we see are churches that are spiritually empowered to do God's work and to remain faithful. Now, Peter, he's writing to encourage suffering Christians. And as he's writing to them, he's encouraging them. It's not about coddling one another and and pulling back. He's encouraging them to remain faithful. In fact, be more assertive in your faithfulness. The only thing that's more extraordinary than what he says here is the fact that so few Christians actually try to do this and live it out. But we have good news today. God's Spirit can allow us, can give us the strength to follow what he says, that we might make our local assembly a place in which God is honored. And it happens very simply by living faithful lives. And yet, it's really hard, isn't it? Well, I I want you to look at our text, and we'll look at that together, and so invite you to stand with me. We're going to read God's word in 1 Peter chapter 4, and starting in verse 7. And this is Holy Scripture. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all Maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In everything. 
To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The precepts of the Lord are right. They cause the heart to rejoice. So welcome it today. You may be seated. Quite a text. And yet, as we found time and again, there's one main idea that guides us. So here's the big idea for our text. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11, it emphasizes three essentials of the church life. Three essentials so that you can help the church glorify God. That should be the desire of every Christian, to help the church collectively glorify God. So we find the first essential is in the first part of verse 7. It's continuing alertness. The second essential is a compelling action, verses 7 through 11. And then finally, it cultivates awe, a cultivating awe in the last part of verse 11. Now, the beginning of this chapter, verses 1 through 6, Peter was focused on what the Christian life should not look like. He was looking at the background of these believers and saying, don't go back into that. You once lived that way, but that's not how believers want to live. And he said that if you go this direction, all that's going to happen is grief. Now, you might find some temporary relief by engaging in these activities, but they just end up magnifying your pain. So instead, Peter said, what you really want, believer, is holiness. You want to excel in godliness. And holiness is so effective in our life because holiness is a life set apart for God. And that produces in us courage and compassion. And as we live holy lives, the Holy Spirit emboldens us to speak with clarity and with love to the unbelievers around us. We say to them, turn to Jesus Christ. We say to them, turn from your rebellion against God and his good law. Confess your rebellious nature to God, and then you will receive forgiveness for all your sins. You'll be cleansed from all unrighteousness when you trust in Jesus Christ. We, we declare to everyone that Jesus Christ died in your place. He took the punishment that you deserve. And his resurrection shows he is, in fact, the Son of God. He's the only one who can save you from the coming judgment and the wrath of God. And he's the only one who can help you walk uprightly before God. We declare that when we grow in holiness with a conviction, both in our words and through our lives. This walking uprightly before God is exactly what Peter transitions into in verses 7 through 11. This is a life of practical holiness. And when we do that, we help the church glorify God together. So Peter, he begins with this holiness-producing truth in verse 7. Look at the beginning of verse 7. He says, the end of all things is near. Now, when I read this, I, I have in mind that street preacher who's wearing a sandwich sign and says, the end is coming and they, they cry out doom and gloom, and we, we chuckle at this characterization. And yet when Peter says it, it's, he's not using a cliche. He's speaking literally truth. And this truth is the true grace of God for us to remain firm and to grow in holiness. Because the fact is, knowing about the end affects our ethics, the, day, the way that we live our daily lives. Now, ever since the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have been living in what the Bible calls the last times, the last days. Now, Peter is saying here that the end of the last days is near. 
So what that means is as you know about the end, you'll discover what hundreds of generations of Christians have discovered. That truth sustains us, and it motivates us too. For example, Hudson Taylor, the great evangelist to China in the 19th century, he said, since Christ may come any day, it's well to be ready every day. And he sought to live his life prepared for Christ's return. That the end is near means all the major events in God's plan of redemption have already occurred. So the stage is set for Christ's return and for him to rule over his kingdom here. Now, what's interesting is the way it's worded in Greek is it's always awkward to do a literal translation into English, but it starts out by saying all things. And so Peter wants in our minds to be all things because this is what the end is near for. And so when we think about all the things that could be, we're meant to be amazed. The end of those things? Things like the cosmos, things like kingdoms. And the end is going to come when all these things have served their purpose. So the problem is, when? (laughs) Isn't that what everybody wants to know? When is the end going to come? In fact, this question is something the disciples asked Jesus himself. In Acts 1, right before Jesus ascended into heaven, they asked him when the end is going to come. Jesus' response is classic. In Acts 1.7, he says, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, it's classified and it's above your pay grade. God will take care of it. But he tells them, don't worry about when. Instead, get busy. So he went on in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Martin Luther, the great reformer, put it this way. God designed that the day of Christ's return should be hid from us so that being in suspense, we might be, as it were, upon the watch. I like that phrase, upon the watch, keeping alert and active, looking out for it, in suspense, in hope, anticipation. So biblically speaking, we're not headed toward the end. Rather, we're on the brink of it. Picture it this way. We're driving in a narrow one-lane road, and on our right-hand side is a a deep chasm. And if we go off, we hit the bump wrong, we're going to fall to our death. And so we're going along, and the road goes on and disappears over the horizon. Like that, the end is near. It's right next to us, so we don't know when it's going to come in. It's only by God's patience that he keeps the world from careening off the edge into his judgment. This is bound to stir up continuing alertness, isn't it? To make us sharp, paying attention at the wheel. This end, we know, it begins with an event that we call the rapture. It's a time when Christ will snatch all Christians who are alive and dead to be with him for a time. Now, there are no events that need to happen before Christ comes and and snatches the church up. It's what we call a signless event. Now, the question is, are you ready? The Lord Jesus told us to be ready in one of his teachings in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 40. Listen to this longer section. He says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants 
whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. He will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So properly understanding the end, and I'm not talking about exegeting all the details with the newspaper, understanding what God has told to us makes you ready to live a God-pleasing life. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10 puts it this way. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And it puts it in the context then, verse 11, or verse 10, of the coming of Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This judgment, it's for Christians that it's talking about, but it's not to see if Christians have done enough good works to earn a ticket into heaven. You only get to this judgment seat if you've been forgiven of your sins. And so what happens is this judgment is determining the reward for your faithful service while you were here on earth. And knowing about this time of reward, it should stir in Christians what Titus 2.14 says, people who are zealous for good works. Because what we love to do when we receive those rewards are simply cast them back at the feet of Christ. And we want as many as we can to put at his feet because he deserves all that honor. But knowing about the nearness of the end of all things will also increase our concern for unbelievers. You see, the rapture, it ushers in what Revelation 7.14 calls the great tribulation. And during the second half of the seven-year period, God's going to pour out a cataclysmic judgment on unrepentant rebellion. It's going to be a horrific time. It's going to be greater in scope, greater in destruction than anything our world has ever seen. We get glimpses of it today in wars and hurricanes and earthquakes, but it's nothing like what is coming. But the worst part is, is that all who die in unbelief they're going to face a final judgment that is far worse than the Great Tribulation with eternal consequences. Friend, I have to ask you, are you trusting in Christ today? Do you realize there are no second chances after you die? In the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, it explains that just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment... So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's never been about your good works outweighing your bad works. It's never been about doing rituals and and things around church. You're always and only saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The essence of saving faith is a treasuring of Christ because you absolutely trust him and only him. How do you know if you treasure Christ? What is said in our passage that you are eagerly waiting for him. Friend, how's your anticipation? Are you looking forward to the return of Christ? 
This first essential of the church life is a continuing alertness. And as we keep the return of Christ in front of us, it stirs up a zeal to follow after God, a zeal to do good works, and a zeal for the lost, that they too might receive forgiveness. But I want you to notice the second essential for church life. And this essential has three compelling actions. We're going to see there's a praying, that's your relationship with God, There's a loving, it's your relationship with other Christians, and there's a serving. That's your relationship within the church. So look at the praying. There it's in the last part of verse 7. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Of course, that word therefore always lets us know this is a continuation. It's a conclusion of the thought he just said. So because the end is near, therefore, this is how we should be. It reminds us that prayer requires us to be sane and sober. So he says, be alert. That that means be self-controlled. Develop sound thinking. Don't think too much of yourself and don't think too little of yourself. Don't be tossed around by wild mood swings. Learn self-control by the power of the Spirit. Spend time in God's Word because when the Word of God gets into a man... 2 Timothy 3.17 describes him as complete, equipped for every good work. That's how you stay alert. He also says that this one who's aware of the end is is sober-minded. This stands directly against in verse 3. It talked about the intoxicating and unrestrained partying of the unbelievers. If you want to stay spiritually sharp, sober-minded needs to be your pursuit. One thing we do is we avoid meaningless and irrational and shallow entertainment. We actually take a step into people's lives instead of just settling for casual, trivial conversations. It'd be good to pause and consider what dulls your spiritual alertness. And then also, what sharpens you? What causes you to be sober-minded? One thing we know for sure that does is our spiritual disciplines. Training yourself for godliness. You see, spiritual training, it sharpens your mind and it keeps you on the ready. Now, chief among them, Paul says, or Peter says here, is prayer. So we need to keep alert. We need to be sober-minded for the purpose of prayer. Have you considered that prayer is hard? Prayer takes thoughtfulness. It takes energy. It's hard to focus our minds. It takes a lot of effort to be engaged in prayer. It's easy to be distracted or discouraged. What's interesting about this word prayer is actually plural. It means all kinds of prayers. I don't know if you're like me. Often my prayers tend to be requests. They may be good requests, but I I really lack in the area of thanksgiving and, and gratitude and confession. But all kinds of prayers. Think about how we should be praying with praise and adoration with confession and desperation, thanksgiving, petition. It means private prayers. It means public prayers. It's praying at all times. Prayer should never be a last resort. It should always be the top priority of our life. Consider that Jesus, the Son of God, he prayed. Consider the matter of his prayer life, the times that he prayed and what he prayed about. Charles Spurgeon said, about Jesus, that he was infinitely more able to do without prayer than we are, yet he prayed much more than we do. Beloved, you'll never pray as you ought 
until the word of God gets into you. We pray at our best with the word of God by our side. You want to know the Bible because prayer isn't about how good you felt, but it's about aligning your request to the will of God. You're not going to know the will of God by any other way than the word of God. When you pray, just be aware you're going to face spiritual opposition. We have an enemy who does not want you calling on the God of the universe for aid and help. So expect that he's going to want you to be distracted, to be confused during times of corporate prayer. And so determine when you come to the gathering that you're going to fix your mind and stay alert on the prayers. You're going to listen to the prayers of the service leaders and you're going to join in with an audible or an in-your-heart amen. There's an opportunity to join every Sunday morning on Zoom at 8.55 with those who pray. Or at 10.10, we meet for 10 minutes in the connect corner to pray. Every two months, we gather on a Wednesday for midweek prayer time for us as a church. And the flesh wants to say, ah, I'm not really feeling like it today. I'm tired. I I just don't think I can. I'm just going to sit this one out. No. You tell yourself, I must be there and I will prepare myself. I'm going to get a good night's sleep the night before. I'm going to be ready and alert because this is what... I need to be about. So prayer is the first compelling action. The second one is in verse 8. It's loving. Look how he puts it. Above all, maintain constant love. Love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, it tells us that love is of greatest importance. And love, friend, is not a sentimental feeling. It's not a warm fuzzy. A biblical love requires the engagement of your intellect and your will. It's a a choice you make, regardless of how you feel. True biblical love wants the best for others in all that God is for them in Jesus Christ. Now, let's be honest. You cannot produce this kind of love on your own. It requires the Spirit of God Almighty to produce this fruit in you. This kind of a love, it's not half-hearted. It's not self-serving. It is a constant love. It means it's faithful. It it means the word constant to be stretched out to full capacity. In other words, you cannot love anymore. I love to watch athletics races, and especially when it's really tight and close. And you see the athletes straining with all their, their might and leaning at the finish line to be the first one across. That's what biblical love looks like. All your might straining to out-love other people. This love it has to be constantly and intentionally nurtured if it's going to remain constant. And if it's going to remain earnest, we must give it our full attention. Now, Peter gives us a motivation. He says, we should maintain this love. Here's why. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, he's quoting from Proverbs 10, verse 12. It says there, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So Christian love, it strives to treat other Christians in a way that promotes unity. But the truth is, haven't we learned this, that Christians let us down? They sin. In their sin, they defame God. They hurt other people. But it says here that biblical love covers any sin. So what does it mean by cover? Well, it doesn't mean that we ignore it or pretend it doesn't happen. 
And it doesn't mean that you can atone for that sin and get forgiveness for that sinner through your love. What it's speaking about is a sin that has been acknowledged and repented of by another person. You see, their, their sin has come against you. And as it does, it reveals the sincerity of your love. Will you still stay with that person even when they've hurt you? Will you still be faithful to pray for them? The, the reality is a genuine biblical love will grow in the face of sin. I've heard it said that while a toddler steps on your toes, a teenager steps on your heart. It, it hurts to love. And our tendency is to guard ourselves. But the greater the pain that comes, it requires a greater love that only God can give to you. The question is, should we be confronting every sin we see all the time? Is that what it means? I'd say we have a principle from Christ, turn the other cheek. It means if there's a personal offense, you don't have to come after every sin and demand repentance. You can look on the situation, you can acknowledge that it hurt, but you can say, this was a rare offense. My brother doesn't do this on a regular basis. I'm going to choose to forgive them in my heart and not make a deal about this. And you choose to not bring it up again. But the reality is too often we see ongoing sin patterns in the lives of other people and we, we avoid saying anything because we hate conflict. We don't want to make the relationship awkward. But we have to consider what is at stake if your friend doesn't repent. Think about this. Sin will gain dominion over his heart. This applies to sins that are habitual and sins that are... Do more than just hurts you, it hurts other people. And so you must decide, I'm going to trust God and I'm going to go in humility to my brother and I'm going to do what the Bible said and trust God with the results. Now, God has been gracious in Matthew 18, 15 through 20 to outline for us steps of what you do. First, you, you go to that person individually and you say, are you aware of this sin? I'm concerned for you. Will you turn from it? And if your brother says, I don't care, then you bring along with you one or two others to help impress upon the sister or the brother how the danger that he is in. If she still doesn't repent, then you bring it before the church so that the whole church can come and plead, turn from this foolishness. This will destroy your life and it'll, it'll cause disunity in the body. And if that person still refuses to repent, then the church together decides to treat that person as an outsider, as an unbeliever, because they are not walking as a believer would. Trusting that God and turning them over to that will make them realize the gravity of the sin and come back to Christ. So when it says that love covers over a multitude of sins, love also addresses sin. But when there's genuine repentance, what it means to cover it up is that you don't bring it up again to shame or embarrass or hurt the other person. You see, there's a, a misstatement that goes around and it says that forgive is to forget, but that's not true. To forgive is to choose to not remember it again. You don't deny the pain and the hurt that happened, but you say, I'm not going to wield this against you later to gain some advantage for me. True forgiveness, when it's given, when it, it comes out, it's the kind of a love that stretches out to the repentant offender and acknowledges the hurt, and it stands ready to rebuild the broken trust. That's... Impossible for us naturally. We need the power of God to do that. But you choose to cover it over with love and to say we are still part of this family. 
It's interesting in Matthew 18, 22, Peter thought he was going over the top when he said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Wouldn't that be great if I forgave the offender seven times in a row? And Jesus' answer shocks him and it, it does us as well. This is how far our covering of sin should go. Jesus said in verse 22, Matthew 18, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. How can you forgive that many times? Just pause and remember what God has forgiven you of. And remember, no one can sin against you more than you've already sinned against God. God will give you the grace to forgive freely and finally. Now, it's easier to let the hard feelings fester. I know a man who uh, told me that in his church, another man was a distraction, was the word he used, a distraction to him in the worship service. And he, as we met time and again, he would continue to complain about this brother. And I realized that there was something wrong in his own heart, and I challenged him on it because I was concerned this bitterness was growing, causing disunity. And I, I called him to repent of this, and he refused he refused to cover the situation with love. Instead, he just held a grudge. And eventually, he left the church over this. Sadly, like him, there are so many Christians who put their personal preferences above extending themselves in love and choosing to cover over inconveniences that others might bring. And in so doing, we fail to help the church glorify God. It's interesting that a practical test of your love for the people is given at the end of verse 9. It says, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Now, why hospitality? It's because you really get tested when someone doesn't just come over for a meal, but they stay the night. And the effort it takes to care for them and show them love and to cook for them and to prepare a place for them to sleep, it's inconvenient. But when you remember Christ can return at any moment, it changes the way that you offer yourself and extend yourself. It makes you eager to forgive, but also to bring people into your life. Because didn't Christ do that for you while you were still his enemy? Didn't he extend to you a hospitable welcome? Surely we can do it for other Christians. Now, in Peter's day, this was a practical reality because the public ends were places of criminal activity, places of immorality. So Christians didn't want to spend the night there. So as they traveled around, whether to share the gospel or to visit one another, they would stay with one another. It was expected that you would show hospitality, but it not only brought inconvenience. In some cases, if you were known to show hospitality to a believer, it could bring persecution against you. It can make your life more than inconvenienced. It can make it miserable. You see, there's always a cost for showing hospitality. Your time, your resources, and in this case, potential persecution. But it was through hospitality that the gospel spread rapidly and broadly in this part of the world. The same thing that could happen today. But the danger is that we do the act, but inside, or maybe even minorly, audibly, we grumble. And that will suffocate love. There's no, should be no murmuring under your breath. There should be no behind the scenes talking about this inconvenience. Because complaining, it doesn't just dishonor the guest, but it, it robs God of his glory and it takes away your joy. Ultimately, complaining is claiming God is treating you unfairly. unfairly. The reality is that God takes it personally. 
he was talking about grumbling Israel in Numbers 14.11, and he said, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? You see, complaining despises God, and it is unbelief in God. You're not trusting him. Just on a practical level, parents, don't just roll your eyes and lose your patience when your children complain. This is a dangerous enemy that you need to warn and correct them about. You need to teach the gospel. You need to call them to repentance and fight the grumble by cultivating gratitude. Be grateful yourself and draw them into that. And also, be aware of grumbling in your own heart. Give it no quarter. You need to kill grumbling with the promise of the gospel and remembering that God was hospitable to you so you too can be hospitable. So we've seen praying and loving. These are compelling actions. Look quickly here. There's a third one, serving, in verses 10 and 11. He says, just as each one of you has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the very gift of God, the very grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength that God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. If you had... Six months to live. What would you give your life to? This is what it should be. Top of your list, serving other people. Giving everything until you are taken away. One of the tragedies of the church is members who don't actively serve. It's been said that the church is too often like a football match. 22 people in desperate need of rest, while 62,000 people are in desperate need of exercise watching. (laughs) We are people who are supposed to serve, and there's no excuse for it. Verse 10 says, everyone has received a gift. What are these gifts? They're empowerments of God, and when you have a gift, it, it reveals a ministry assignment, and it's a promise that you'll have the power to do that assignment. The word for gift here is related to the word for grace. So these gifts are undeserved. They're given freely and generously by God. What this means is there are no useless Christians. We all have different parts to play. Now, each believer's gift, as we look at Scripture, seems to be a combination, a unique blend of personality, of past experiences, and of natural talent all empowered by the Spirit of God to help the church glorify God. Now, we think oftentimes of these gifts like superpowers, but they're not. They're practical ministry assignments. And what they have all in common is that no one chooses the gift. It is assigned to you, and you get to receive that. Now, some have written tests to try to help you find your gifts, but the problem is that they're very subjective, and it just depends on what you think you want to answer the question as, and people tend to approach it by what they gift that they admire and lean that direction. But the Bible takes a different approach. It just simply encourages you serve. And as you serve, that gift will come out, and that gift will go to work in ways that no one else can do that same task. But your gift is going to be revealed through other people and through practice. There should be no place when someone says, I can't do that, that's not my gift. Because any task or activity of the church can be done by anyone. Some will be find more pleasure in it than others, but in any activity, your gift will come out for the good of the body. Now, not only does it say that everyone has at least one gift, 
But verse 10 says what they are for. For one purpose, to serve others. There's no idea in the Bible of a gift that is for you to edify yourself. Every gift is for the building up of other people, to spiritually benefit them. There was a great violinist in the 1800s named Paganini. And when he died, he left his renowned violin to the city of Genoa, Italy. And what they did with it is what anyone would do. They put it in a glass case and and made sure no one could touch it. What was tragic is this gifted violinist had used this beautiful instrument to make music that had impacted so many people, brought beauty and help to so many people. And yet today it sits in a museum behind glass. Oh, beloved, is that you? Are you taking that incredible gift meant to benefit others and just holding it close to yourself? Your grace gift is meant to be for the benefit of other people, not to be buried. When you think about burying gifts, when you think about the parable Jesus told of a man, he entrusted a large portion of his wealth to his servants, and he left on a long trip. And he said, use this gift, invest it. And so two of the three used it. They made more out of those finances. And so when he came back, the master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Oh, don't you want to hear those words? But there's a warning in the passage as well. One servant did nothing with the gift. He buried it. And so what he was told was, you wicked and slothful servant. Now, there are people who don't serve merely out of disobedience. They know they should, but they don't want to. But there are some of you who feel like, I have nothing to offer. I don't know how to do this. Either way, it's rooted in a lack of faith. Trust God to use you even if you don't know what it is. It's tragic to bury a grace gift, but it's horrific to think about refusing to serve and benefiting other people. One thing that's tragic about it is the term is varied gifts of grace. In other words, when we use these gifts, it puts on display God's grace. And don't we need to see more of God's grace? Don't we need more of that in our lives? And so when you withhold your gift, you are hiding the very thing that we need to see. 1 Corinthians 4, 2 encourages us, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. And so God delights to distribute to each one a unique combination of gifts that will call attention to his manifold grace. Now, it gives us two categories to think about here, just general categories. There are broad categories of gifts. There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. Speaking gifts here are are related to that which is ministering the word of God, preaching, teaching, privately to one another, using the word of God to help someone understand how to break that sin habit. But no matter what form it takes, the gift must be used with care and reverence because it is God's word that we are ministering. Unfortunately, with the serving gifts, they seem kind of mundane and practical, and we don't think about how much care we should be giving to these as well. Things like administration or leadership, helping, serving, mercy. But these are just as significant as the public gifts like preaching. And so because we think they're off to the side, the tendency is we can do it on our own strength. We don't need as much training to do this. But that is so dangerous. God has supplied us with strength so that we will use a gift in a way that will benefit other people. And when we don't use God's strength, whatever temporary benefit there is will fade quickly. Now, regardless of the gift, it's going to take time to develop an, an ability to use that gift well. Well, 
A talented athlete will accomplish little without training, without practice, without coaching. And so when you have a gift, you need to learn how to develop that. And believer, we have people here who are happy to work with you, to help you grow, to be as good as you can in God's strength. The fact that God says you have to serve in his strength will help kill pride because if anything good comes about it, you can only say, it was God through me. It wasn't me. And that guards you. Lest we become like Satan when we begin to admire ourselves because it's God's glory reflecting off of us when we think it's rather the glory coming out of me. Far be it from us to make a big deal out of ourselves because God is doing something through us. So we have these compelling actions. And the whole reason for them is that the end of verse 11, that God will be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. This is the reason and our reward. Our reason is for God to be glorified, and the reward is we see God glorified in everything. Whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. Yes, that means when you drink your morning tea. It means when you have your afternoon sandwich. It means when you take your exam. Everything is on the table, and that means nothing is mundane or insignificant. It all can be used for glorifying God, which means all your gifts can be used in any situation, at any time, for the benefit of the body and the glory of God. And it only happens by doing it through Jesus Christ. So whatever gift you receive, whatever grace you experience, whatever joy others get through you is successful only because of Jesus Christ, only because of his perfect life, only because of his vicarious death, his glorious resurrection. Do you see how utterly dependent you are on God to even do the insignificant hidden tasks for his glory? And that's what makes them all so valuable. So we've seen the first essential, a continuing alertness. A second essential, a compelling action. And we're going to finish with the last half of verse 11, this cultivating awe. Look at it with me. He says, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. When it says to him, it's ambiguous. And I think it's purposely ambiguous. It means both the son and the father. You see, both share equally, eternally in the glory and the honor. The triune God has glory. That's honor and praise and esteem. And our part is to stand in awe of the glory of God, knowing he will never gain more glory and he will never diminish in glory. And this God, this glorious God, has the power to exercise his sovereign reign, even to help you serve and glorify him in that, that way. What's astonishing, though, is God doesn't just keep his power to himself. He wields it in such a wonderful way that we benefit from it. Ephesians 1.19, the immeasurable greatness of his power is toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. That's astounding. And God serves us in that. God is victorious. God is forever and ever glorious. He is endlessly and perfectly glorious. And this is why Peter started with the same way that how he started with, to the end of all things is near. Keep the glory of God in mind. And it finishes because that is what we are aiming toward as well. Let it cultivate awe in you. And as you do that, you will draw the body of Christ to glorify him in every single way.